Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Today I want, I want to start with a story from the Bible, a story about a man named Simon, or some of your translations will call him Simeon. But Simeon uh, did something that I think would be pretty cool. He invited Jesus to his house. How many of you think that would be kind of special? You know, so Simeon, he, he invites Jesus to come to his house. Now, here's something we need to understand about him. He was a religious leader, and he believed, he believed that it was his job to behave perfectly enough and to inspire enough other people to behave perfectly enough and to punish those who didn't behave perfectly enough so that the Messiah would come back and deliver them from the Romans. This was his understanding of his job as a religious person. Some translations call him a religious leader. Others' translations call him a Pharisee. Now, today, when we hear the word Pharisee, we instantly think of something negative because we recognize so much that Jesus, I mean, like the only people Jesus ever insulted were the Pharisees. All right, but I don't want us to think about Simon as a bad guy. I want us to think about Simon as a person who thought that the way to do things right in the religious context, the way to do things right was to behave good enough, get enough other people to behave good enough, and get down on those who don't behave good enough so that Jesus would come and do what he needs to do. All right, now, when we say it that way, don't point at anybody, don't raise But have you ever encountered anybody with a mindset somewhere along those lines who feels like the way to have a successful, a good church is to get everybody there to behave well enough? So let's, let's go to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We're going to start the story. It says, when one of the Pharisees, we find out in verse 40 that his name is Simeon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Another translation says who was a known prostitute. Learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She brought this with her. Her plan in advance was to do something with this alabaster jar. And verse 38 says, And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. So 
The Pharisee obviously saw something in Jesus that, that appealed to him, right? Why else would he have invited him to his home? But in verse 39, when the Pharisee saw that Jesus wasn't judgmental against this woman, he says, well, maybe, maybe I've got this wrong because if this man was a prophet, I'm not sure he is. Because wouldn't a prophet be judgmental of this woman? He thought that a prophet of God's goal was going to be to maximize perfect behavior. But what did Jesus say his goal was? John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. The Pharisee was embarrassed by her awkward and passionate behavior. It didn't fit what he believed should be happening in his home. It didn't look like what he wanted in his house. Have we ever, again, don't raise your hands, but have you ever been to church and you look around and you see something that doesn't look like it fits? It's like, you know what? Everybody here is dressed to a certain level except them. You know, everybody here is acting kind of a certain way, except them. You know, everybody here, they can sing or they're being quiet, except them. Have we ever been looking and, and saying, this, that doesn't fit? See, that Simon thought he was doing something good by seeking what he would have called unity. I want everyone to be the same. I want everyone to behave similarly. I want all of you guys to do... And, and when a sinner showed up at his house and began to behave in what he deemed to be an embarrassing overly exuberant, too passionate, possibly ill-motived. It seems that, that he thought, you know what? If that man knew what manner of woman she was, he wouldn't let her do that. It seems that, that the Pharisee was not only judging her actions, but also judging her intentions, assuming that he knew her intentions. Now, here's the thing. It is, it is challenging. It is, how do I put it? It will be difficult not to judge people by whether they fit in or not. Because honestly, it's something we're hardwired to do. Now, how many of you have ever traveled to a country that doesn't speak English? Okay. Or someplace when you're out there, and then what happens? If you get on a train or 
or you're walking through a store and you hear English, what do you do? Tourist. It's like, oh, where are you from? And, you know, oh, you're from Minnesota? I'm from Michigan. Ah! They both start with M-I and they're in the north. And, you know, like, we're best friends now. Because you found someone who you have something in common with. It, it, it's, it, it's so normal the way that we just seek out commonality. Now, is there anything wrong with traveling and being excited that you heard someone speak your native language? No. Nothing's wrong with that. But we have a tendency to do that because it makes us comfortable. I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm, the, the reason you're drawn to that person who has, is speaking your language is because you've been around a bunch of people who don't. And, and, it's, and it's comfortable to be around sameness, to be around somebody who talks like you, maybe dresses like you, maybe uh, likes the same football team as you, has different things that are in common. And to be inclusive, and uh, you guys are obviously thinking, well, there it is. He didn't say race. I didn't mention it first because we know, we know it is, it is one of the most prevalent values right now in our culture is that racism is wrong, and it is. And we, should, we know that we should not be excluding people based on race. But I want to broaden our understanding and recognize that it is so easy to just look for sameness in other places. We are blessed to live in a society where we have so much diversity, we can look around and we can see many different shades of, of, of skin and hair color and eyes and, and all of that. But you know what? There are places you can go where everyone is about the same. Visually, but do you know what? They still find areas to discriminate with. They still will divide over sameness. Maybe it's economic levels. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's, it's something else. But it is, it is a hardwired tendency that we have to be intentional to break. Because what does someone need to be? in order to belong to church? Is, is there an income requirement? Is there an age? Is there a look? Is there a particular maturity level? Is there... There isn't. See, for the Pharisee, it was about how you behave. Jesus responds, and we're going to get into it in a minute, Jesus says it's about how you feel towards God. The Pharisee was, was upset by too much emotion. God describes what defines a believer in John 13, 35. 
I'm reading from the Passion Translation. It says, for when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you are my true followers. Jesus says that when people look at the church, what will differentiate us, what will identify us as the church isn't what we look like. It's how we treat other people. It's how we feel towards God and towards others. Because we're going to recognize, he says, because you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving another. He says, what, what will identify the church is people who are focused on my love for them will respond with love for others. When they're focused on that. Now, let's continue in the story here. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. Jesus answered Simeon, because Simeon says, hey, what's going on? And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Kudos to Simon. He says, okay, tell me. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped, it, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. That phrase, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. It's interesting, the Passion Translation, and I looked through quite a few, it clarifies something there. It says this, it says, she has been forgiven for all her many sins, that is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. The Pharisee wasn't even confident in his belief in Jesus, remember? He was like, hey, if he is a prophet... The Pharisee wasn't looking to Jesus for forgiveness. The Pharisee was looking to his own life, thinking, hey, if I can measure up to enough rules, if I can be perfect enough, he didn't recognize God's love. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. You see, God says it over and over and over again. He says, the love that you have for others, it will come. You can't just manufacture that. You can't be like, well, it's a good idea. I guess I'm just going to. 
No, God says it's a reaction to recognizing his love for us. When we see and know and recognize his love for us, that empowers us to love others. Again, the Passion Translation says, our love for others is our grateful response to the love God first demonstrated for us. The Pharisee sees her, and he assumes the worst. He judges her motives. He assumes that she is trying to seduce Jesus, that, he is try- that she, is, she is treating him the way her reputation said she had treated others. Let me just throw this out there. It is not our place to be judging people's motives. When we look and we see someone different, Beware when we assume they're doing that for some inappropriate reason. Jesus responds, and he actually clarifies to the Pharisees. She's she's doing this because she desires to honor me. She's doing this because she is so grateful that her sins have been forgiven. There's a verse in Proverbs 27, 7 that says, A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Another translation says, to someone who is full, even honey doesn't sound good. When we don't have, when we don't recognize our need, then we don't value what's been offered to us. So if the Bible says those who have been forgiven little, love little, does that mean that we all need to go out there and do enough to be forgiven a lot? Is is that what's missing? Is that what's missing from? Not at all. That's why I read the Passion Translation that says we assume we don't know that we have not been forgiven of much. Here's the thing. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Say it with me. I have sinned. I have. I need God's forgiveness. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. If I have sinned, I deserve death. Well, but I didn't sin as bad as they did. You know, they robbed a bank. I stole the stapler from the office. They killed somebody. I just cuss out my boss under my breath every day. We 
we look at that and then we think to ourselves, here's the issue, we think to ourselves, I don't really need very much forgiveness. You know what the danger is in that? Besides being wrong, is when we do not recognize that we needed forgiveness, it weakens our ability to forgive others. When we don't recognize what God has forgiven in us, it weakens our response to God and our love for him. We need to recognize that we were and we we were sinners. This is what Isaiah 6 4 through 6 or uh, verse 6 says. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. That verse says that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags. I, I've used this example many times, but I, I just like it. Okay, imagine God looking down from heaven at humanity. And humanity is going to be represented by the, the carpet here. Okay, I'm standing on a carpeted platform. Now, the carpet is made up of a bunch of little tassels of fabric. Some of them are taller than others. Any, everyone agree? If the goal of those carpet strands is to reach God, who's up here at my head level. Does it really matter that some of them are a millimeter closer to achieving it than others? Because the deficit between where they are and where they're trying to be is insurmountable. You see, you and I look at our lives, and we, we're down there in the carpet. We're looking over like, oh, I am better than them. I'm, I'm taller than them. I have made less mistakes than them. I've sinned less than them. I haven't sinned as bad as them. And God's up here saying, so what? You need my forgiveness so that you don't pay the price for your sin. He, he's up here, look, at, when we think that our comparative goodness makes us less or more worthy of God's forgiveness, we're wrong. C.S. Lewis famously said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. But how many of us genuinely recognize we've done something inexcusable? We have such a tendency. Another thing that is hardwired in us is to, to make excuses for ourselves. We just have that tendency. No more obvious than a kid at the dinner table after the prayer is over. He had his eyes open. Of course, as an adult, 
we can apply the logic and say, well, you had your eyes open too in order to see that they did. But only their mistake matters. Only their mistake matters. How many people have gossiped about being gossiped about? I can't believe they would say that about me. They are so... Can't believe... Oh, yeah, I agree. They're terrible. How could they talk about you? How could they say something like that? We just... Over and over, we have that tendency to not see what we did wrong as wrong, but to see it as wrong if someone else does it. Or to say, what I did isn't that big a deal because it's not as big of a thing as what they did. But James 14, 17, or 4, 17 says this, if anyone knows, or anything, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Anybody ever known something they should do and didn't do it? Sinners! <laughs> it's that simple. We are all fallen. We all deserve. But here's the, here's the thing. Even if I didn't rob a bank, even if I didn't kill someone, I still committed sufficient sin that the wages of my sin is death. If I am forgiven of a death sentence and someone else was forgiven of a death sentence, how ridiculous am I to be like, well, mine doesn't count because you had bigger reasons. The Bible says we are all sinners. Romans 3.27 says this, Where then is boasting? It is excluded because of the law. The law that requires, no, because of the law that requires faith. It says it is not by works, the Bible says, so that no one can boast. Every one of us was born into a sinful nature. Mark 7.21 says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. We are all guilty of sin. Say it with me. I am guilty. So, when I recognize my guilt, what does that do for me? When I recognize that no matter how I compare to the other pieces of carpeting, the perfection that I needed to be right with God of my own behavior is just massive. The difference between my behavior, and what would be required for me to achieve righteousness on my own is so big, it's pointless to consider. And comparing myself with somebody else who is, is, 
you know, sin has in, in different magnitudes than mine is pointless. Here's the thing. We don't have to go out and sin big in order to love God big. We just need to be aware that we require forgiveness. What made the Pharisees such ugly characters throughout the Bible? Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, you've painted the outside as if it's perfectly white and clean. What's inside is rotting, disgusting, putrid death. What what made them that? It was their constant insistence on trying to be good enough on their own to make things happen. Instead of recognizing their need for Jesus' forgiveness, they constantly focused on their accomplishment of behaviors. Look what I did. I gave this, and I did this, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that. Now, are we to avoid sin? Yeah. What did Jesus say to the paralytic? Go and sin no more. Is it right as a Christian to avoid sin? Yeah, the Bible says avoid even the appearance of evil. But recognizing that isn't what wins me over. That's not what makes me right for church. I asked the question a little bit ago, what does it take to fit in at church? What is the actual criteria for someone to be a church member, a member of that body. It requires not that they, you, they, they have a, the same daily routine. It doesn't require that. It doesn't require a certain education level. It doesn't require a certain look. It doesn't require a certain hair color or body type or, or height or weight or anything like that. It requires an attitude towards God. And where does that attitude towards God come from? It comes from recognizing our need for his forgiveness and our reception of his love. When I recognize the deficit between what I can accomplish and what I need to accomplish in order to have eternal life, and I recognize that he gave that to me, that he forgave me the debt that I had, I'm grateful. I'm grateful and I have an attitude towards the Lord of gratefulness and of love. What makes a good person, church person, it's, it's, it's not those other things. 
It's are they reacting to God's forgiveness? Jesus said of that ex-prostitute that she had the right attitude. She showed up to church with something predetermined to give to the Lord. The Pharisee invited Jesus over to impress him with his behavior. That was the difference. As, as, as we grow in our Christian walk, a big part of that is being intentional. Intentional about how I view myself and my behavior. We need to avoid that behavior that Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. Ooh, God must like me because I've avoided so many bad things lately. Oh, God loves, loves me. I'm going to go, you know, hang out with a bunch of other people who just like, no. God says, when you are aware, conscientious, and reacting to the forgiveness that you know I have given you, that is when you have the right attitude. I titled the message today, Forgiven of Much? Because the truth is, all of us have been. But we don't want to focus on it. The Bible is the gospel. What does gospel mean? Does anyone remember? Good news. You know something? In order to have good news, you know what you need? Bad news. In order for there to be good news, it has to be better than the other news. And that other news is our fallen state. The other news is without Jesus, where would I be? And here's the thing. Whether I robbed a bank or just lied on my taxes, without Jesus, I'm in the same place. I am forgiven of the same consequences. Do you catch that? I am forgiven of the same end result as that person who I thought I was better than because I didn't sin as much as they did. We were headed the exact same place. The exact same place. And when I recognize that, then I can have the appropriate attitude. I don't have to be an ex-prostitute in order to recognize and be grateful to God that he saved me. Right? I reckon he saved me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, The God whom God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
That is the good news. God made him, who's that? Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the good news. That is what we're excited about. That is what we're reacting to. That should be why you and I are here right now. Because we recognize that we had sin. And then Jesus, who had no sin, who deserved none of the consequences of sin, was made sin so that I could have his righteousness and my, the consequences that belong to me for sin are removed and put on him. Yeah! Like, that is what I'm reacting to. That is what I am grateful for. It is that recognition that I am no longer responsible to pay the debt that my sin cost me. I was just as lost as the sinful woman in this story. All of us were. I want to close by saying, if you know that you've been forgiven, you've been made right with God, that that sacrifice Jesus made on the cross has been applied to your sin, I want to ask you to raise your hand. Yeah. We are so blessed. Now, if you're here or if you're there, hoping there's extra of you out there on Labor Day weekend watching today. If you're watching there, and you say, I want that to be me, but I don't know it for sure. I certainly hope that I have been, but I don't know for sure. The Bible tells us, know that you have salvation. It doesn't say, hope and wonder, wait around, find out when you die. We'll issue you a ticket, check the number later. It says, know, know that you have salvation. How do you know? The Bible describes it in Romans 10, 9, and 10. It says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Not you'll wonder if, but you will be. That is what it takes to appropriate the forgiveness that Jesus is offering. That's it. It's, there's no behavioral standard we have to reach. He just says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. So if that's you and you want to know for sure, with every eye closed just for a moment, I want to invite you to raise your hand. If you're watching online, if that's you, I can't see your hand, but we'll, we'll pray with you anyway. If there's anybody here, all right, let's just pray together with anybody that's watching. Say, dear God, I believe that I have sinned and my sin separated me from you. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin and that he arose 
victorious over death and the devil. I choose to live my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Adrian.